Once again this morning, I have a handout as we again are going to be looking at numerous portions of Scripture in order to better understand what is going on in this particular portion of the Word of God. So let me begin by asking, is anyone in need of a handout? If you raise your hand, there are individuals that are ready to quickly come and give you a handout. Anybody? There's one over here, up front. Anyone else? Raise your hand, good and high. Okay. Today, I am going to conclude my series on 2 Kings. We have spent over three years going through 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings. So today, it brings this particular portion to a close. We come to the end of the book, and we come to the end of the kingdom of Judah. The city is destroyed, and many of the Jewish people are taken captive to Babylon. This is a, a sad state of affairs. But this is the fulfillment of the warnings of coming judgment that was given to many different kings of Judah in the time of their reign. So this should not be any surprise at all. God had been repeatedly warning of this coming judgment. They repeatedly refused to accept that warning and to repent. Last week, we emphasized that this was God's judgment against Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar coming up against them. He was referred to as God's servant. He was doing the will of God. So nevertheless, the kings and the people would not listen. They would not repent. They continued in the rejection of God's authority. So today, we look at the, the tale of two kings. Two kings who respond to God's dealing with the nation of Judah in two very different ways. While the book ends with the destruction of Jerusalem and the deportation of Babylon, we know that is not the ultimate end. God will bring his people out of captivity and the city will be restored. However, this morning we focus on the lessons to be learned from the fate of two kings. The two kings have much in common that is, both of them did what was evil in the eyes of God. They lived very ungodly lives. Jehoiakim is described in verses 8 and 9, where it reads, Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name is Nehushta, the daughter of Elmanathan of Jerusalem. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father had done. Zedekiah is described in verses 18 and 19. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became a king, and he reigned seven years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamatol, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna, and he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. So what is different about the two kings, and what defines them, is the way that they responded to the king of Babylon and ultimately to God. There's quite a different response to the king of Babylon. Jehoiachin surrenders and submits to the king of Babylon, verses 10 and through 12. At the time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up to Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon. So he surrenders. After he surrenders, the king of Babylon makes Zedekiah the new king over Jerusalem. But Zedekiah rebels against the king of Babylon, verse 20. 
And because of the anger of the Lord, it came to the point of Jerusalem and Judah. He cast them out from his presence, and Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. Again, last week we saw that God made it clear that God was behind Nebuchadnezzar's coming against the city of Jerusalem. This was a judgment of God on the arrogance and self-reliance of Judah. Nebuchadnezzar was unwittingly acting as God's servant and being the instrument of God's judgment. Therefore, to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar was in fact rebelling against God. So the kings and the people were at a very important fork in the road. They had a clear choice to make. Would they continue in defiance to God and fight against Nebuchadnezzar, or would they submit to God and his discipline and surrender to the king of Babylon? Today we learn that it will go far better for them if they would surrender to the king of Babylon as opposed to fighting the king of Babylon. The general truth is that one is far better off in accepting God's judgment and being humbled by it rather than in proud arrogance refusing to accept God's judgment. Let me say that again. The general truth is that one is far better off in accepting God's judgment and being humbled by it rather than in proud arrogance refusing to accept God's judgment. So we want to look at these two kings and their fates. We begin by looking at Jehoiachin. Jehoiachin is an evil king, as we have already noted. And Jehoiachin surrendered to the king of Babylon, which is a good thing. Told us in verse 12, and Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon. Jehoiachin is afraid of the king Nebuchadnezzar, and rightfully so. In Jeremiah chapter 24, verse 24, it says, As I live, declares the Lord, through Coniah, which is another name for Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my hand, yet I would tear it off. I have here as an aside, Jehoiachin, son of Jehoiakim, and Nehusha was also called Jeconiah and Coniah, which is one of the things that reading through Kings and Chronicles can be confusing for a number of these kings had different names that were given to them by different uh, reigning authorities and powers. Uh, so you, you've got to even keep the name straight as to who you're talking about. All three of these identities are the same. All right? And um, in Jeremiah twenty-two twenty-five, 25, God makes it clear that it says, I give you, that is Jehoiachin, into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those of whom you are afraid. So Zedekiah is afraid of Nebuchadnezzar, and I say rightfully so. He had enough sense that he knows that there's no way for him to resist the king of Babylon and win. Now, as you read the account, you will notice that there are these mighty men of soldiers that are taken. They just surrender. They don't put up any fight. And it appears that Jehoiakim is a, is a realist. Uh, it doesn't really appear that, that he is submitting to God in the sense of repenting and coming to absolute faith. He just sees the handwriting on the wall and says, man, you know, this, this, this is a powerful army. There's no way that we're going to be able to defeat them because he knows that God will not be on their side. God is not going to fight for them. God is going to fight against them. And so he does the wise thing and he surrenders. Once again, we are to be reminded that this is God's doing. Jeremiah twenty-two twenty-four. 24, as I live, declares the Lord. Verse 26, 
I will hurl you and the mother who bore you into another country, which is exactly what takes place. And then 2 Kings 24, 12, the king of Babylon took him prisoner in the eighth year of his reign. So all that God said was brought to pass. Nebuchadnezzar goes away from the city along with great spoils, verse 13, and carried off all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold in the temple of the Lord, which Solomon, king of Israel, had made as the Lord had foretold. God said all this would happen. He carried away Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives, and all the craftsmen and the, and the smiths, none remained, except the poorest people and the land. And he carried away Jehoiakim to Babylon, the king's mother, the king's wives, the officials, and the chief men of the land he took into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. And the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon all the men of valor, 7,000, and the craftsmen, and the metal workers, 1,000, all of them strong and fit for war. So here are these mighty individuals that are well-renowned for various gifts and abilities, and all of them are just going to surrender, right? They just say, we, 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 we can't stand against them. All of our wiles, all of our, all of our abilities, all of our talents, all of our strengths, it's futile. And so they surrender. Jeremiah, is, uh, excuse me, Jeconiah is disgraced, and all should learn from it. Jeremiah twenty two twenty eight. The man Kohananiah, again the same individual, a despised, broken pot, a vessel no one cares for. Why are he and his children hurled and cast into a land that they do not know? O land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. So Jeconiah is despised. He, he is thought little of. Uh, he loses any credibility or recognition. Who wants a king that surrenders to their enemies and their foes? So he's brought low. He's humbled, all right? Uh, he's made a laughing stock. But God says, oh, land, land, land. Hear the word of God. Learn from this, God is saying. Take this to heart. Take this to mind. See what I am doing. Verse 30, thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. Note his end. Then we're Introduced to Zedekiah. Zedekiah is placed king over Judah by king of Babylon. Verse 17 of 2 Kings 24. And the king of Babylon made Madaniah, Jehoiakim's uncle, king in his place. So Jerusalem and Judah are under the authority of the king of Babylon because Jehoiakim surrendered. And he's carried off all of their, their mighty men. And he institutes, he empowers, he enables another king to be set up 
in Jerusalem that will still oversee the city, will still oversee the, the nation and its conduct, but he will be a vassal king. That is, he's under the authority of Babylon. He can't do anything that the king of Babylon won't agree to or will not support. So he's a puppet in a sense, but yet still able to rule, still have freedom. The city continues on, and life really wouldn't be all that bad if he continues as a vassal king. But Zedekiah rebels against the king of Babylon, verse 20. For because of the anger of the Lord, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out from his presence, and Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. For here is this coming judgment. So he rebels. God provides Zedekiah with a message right after Jeconiah is taken to Babylon. In Jeremiah chapter 24, it reads, After Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, that God gives a message. He says this, reading on in Jeremiah 24.1, now in the regular print. Together with the officials of Judah, the craftsmen and the metal workers, and had brought them to Babylon, the Lord showed me this vision. Behold, two baskets of figs placed before the temple of the Lord. One basket had very good figs, like first ripe figs, but the other basket had very bad figs, so bad that they could not be eaten. And the Lord said to me, what do you see, Jeremiah? I said, figs. The good figs are good, and the bad figs very bad, so bad that they cannot be eaten. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Now God is going to explain what this vision means. D, God will take care of those who have surrendered and go into captivity. Jeremiah 24, 5 and following. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Like these good figs, so I will regard as good the exiles from Judah. That's a good thing, all right? So those that have gone into captivity, I'm going to regard as good, whom I have sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. I will set my eyes on them for good. God's going to watch over them. I will bring them back to this land. The captivity will end after 70 years. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. And furthermore, he's going to do a spiritual work in their lives. Verse 7, And I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. So God is going to do a work in his people in Babylon. And of course, you know, we have the book of Daniel. We have uh, Daniel and his rise to authority and power. We have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. God is going to do a work. God, God is not going to leave his people, though they are in captivity in Babylon. He's going to watch over them. He's going to protect them. He's going to make them secure and safe. And he's ultimately going to bring them out. However, those who refuse to go into captivity will be destroyed. Jeremiah 24, 8. But thus says the Lord, like the bad figs that are so bad they cannot be eaten, so will I treat Zedekiah, the king of Judah, 
his officials, the remnant of Jerusalem, who remain in this land, and those who dwell in the land of Egypt. Now remember, this message comes right after he becomes king. I will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, to be a reproach, a byword, a taunt, and a curse in all the places where I shall drive them. And I will send sword, famine, and pestilence upon them until they be utterly destroyed from the land that I have given them and their fathers. So to fight against Babylon means destruction. He's told that in the very beginning of his reign. Zedekiah, in rejecting the authority of the king of Babylon, was in actuality rejecting God's authority and judgment. For God said, don't do that. Don't rebel against this king, he's bringing my judgment. That Kings 24, 20. For because of the anger of the Lord, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out from his presence. That's what God was doing. And Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. And in so doing, he rebels against God. Now, let me remind you, God had made it clear through Jeremiah that Zedekiah was to submit to the king of Babylon. There is no question as to what was the right thing for him to do. Jeremiah 27, 1. In the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, again from the outset, notice verse 2. Thus says the Lord to me, make yourself straps and yoke bars and put them on your neck. So now God gives a visual for Zedekiah. The visual is that Jeremiah the prophet is to make a yoke. You know, a yoke that is worn by uh, usually uh, animals that bring them under authority. Put a yoke on your neck, Jeremiah, and go into Zedekiah's presence and say, look, this yoke I am wearing represents you under the authority of the king of Babylon. Notice Jeremiah 27, 12. To Zedekiah, king of Judah, I spoke in like manner, Bring your necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon. It couldn't have been clear. Furthermore, if Zedekiah would submit to the authority of the king of Babylon, he and others would live. Look at Jeremiah 7, 27, 12. To Zedekiah, king of Judah, I spoke in like manner. Bring your necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him and his people and live. All right? Now, if you're going to accept this judgment, if you're going to accept the consequences of the sin of the nation, and you bring yourself under the authority of this king, you're going to live. Not only you, but the people will live. All right? I will spare this city. But if you don't, if you continue to rebel, if you continue to reject my Discipline and my judgment, well, that brings us to three. He was not to follow the teaching of the false prophets, most notably, he was not to follow Hananiah, who was telling King Zedekiah and the people to rebel against the king of Babylon. Verse 14 Do not listen to the words of the prophets who are saying to you, You shall not serve the king of Babylon, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you. Verse 15, I have not sent them, declares the Lord, but they are prophesying falsely in my name. If they listen to the false prophets and rebel against the king of Babylon, then God will destroy them. Verse 15, 
I have not sent them, declares the Lord, but they will prophesy falsely in my name with the result that I will drive you out and will, you will perish, you and the prophets who are prophesying to you. Furthermore, the city of Jerusalem will be destroyed if they rebel against the king of Babylon. Verse 17, do not listen to them, serve the king of Babylon and live. Why would this city become a desolation? Why would it be just wiped out? Why, why would it become empty and places burned? A clear choice. Hananiah, a false prophet, contradicts Jeremiah. Jeremiah 28.1, in that same year at the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the fifth month of the fourth year, Hananiah, the son of Azor, the prophet from Gibeon, so this false prophet is going to, in essence, say the exact opposite of what Jeremiah says, verse 2. Thus says Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, this is the false prophet speaking. He's claiming to speak for God, doesn't. He says, God says, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years, I will bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place, and carried to Babylon, I will also bring back to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the exiles from Judah who went to Babylon. So, this false prophet says, God says, I'm going to turn this all around in two years. Everything's going to change, everything's coming back, the captivity's going to be over, and Jeconiah is going to be back in authority. But God had said, no, this was not going to happen. It was going to be 70 years. Number seven, so the king and the people have a very important decision to make. To whom will they listen? What way are they going to go? Are they going to follow Jeconiah? Or are they, excuse me, are they going to follow Jeconiah and, and surrender? Or are they going to rebel? and follow this false prophet, Hananiah. Eight, God is gracious. If the people will repent and go into captivity, at least their lives and their city will be spared. God continually, even in judgment, is holding out this, this fig leaf if you will just repent. If you will just accept the consequences of your wrongdoing, even now you can be spared. Haven't you learned enough? Haven't you seen the consequences of your actions? But number nine, if they continue to be obstinate rebel, then they and the city will be destroyed. Then, then everything will be wiped out. Well, the application. Sometimes we are faced with very unpleasant choices. That is, do we accept God's discipline or continue in rebellion against him? It is not unusual that people encounter two very different and even contrary teachings from those who profess to be teaching the truth of God's word. I can't express that enough to you. You will find very contradictory teaching of individuals who profess to speak from God. You will find, without much effort, people who will call good evil and evil good. You want to read about 
moral stands, whether it be on abortion, whether it be on, on uh, LGBTQ issues, whatever it is, you will find very opposite teaching from individuals who claim to be speaking from God. What is one to do? Four, God's people have a message that they want to hear and a message they do not want to hear. What will they do? One might ask the question, how are they to know how and whom to believe? In fact, I started down that road for a while and, and uh, I was giving a list of ways in which they should have known that this false prophet was false and Jeremiah was the true prophet. I had a page and a half of reasons. And then I just came to the realization, however, it is not that they are poor, innocent people in a quandary as to whom to believe. Rather, they are stubborn and rebellious and welcome the false teaching. It isn't that they were duped. They were told what they wanted to hear and what they wanted to be the truth. It wasn't the truth. They didn't want the truth. They wanted to be told what was false because they had rebellious hearts. For them, let's fight. That's not surrender. Look at Jehoiakim, he's disgraced. He's ridiculed, he's mocked. We don't want that. Who wants to be mocked? Who wants to be ridiculed? Let's stand up. Let's fight. They liked that message. And because they liked that message, they welcomed the prophet Hananiah. God warns against the same kind of rebellion in our day. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, it says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be diligent in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine. But having itching ears, which simply means they want to hear something else. They don't want to hear the sound doctrine. It isn't that they don't know what it is. It is they're tired of listening to it. I don't want that. I want something else. I want something that supports me in my decisions. I want something that, that I can buy into, that I want. Where it says, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They will find people who are willing to say what they want them to say. They are going to find people that will support their sinful decisions and reject those that are going to challenge them. So number 10, it is not that they could not know the difference between truth and error. It was a heart that stubbornly refused to listen to the truth. There are those who, when they experience a message of judgment or condemnation, arrogantly refuse to be humbled or shamed. 
They refuse and reject accountability. That is so important to understand. Here is a God who is bringing judgment. He is bringing shame. He is bringing reproach. He is seeking to humble them. But they won't be humbled. They won't be disgraced. They won't be shamed. They won't admit their wrongdoing. And they continue on. Number 12, they stand in defiance as opposed to contradiction. They are incapable of being shamed. What should bring disgrace? They turn into praise. It is a pathway to destruction to doggedly resist the truth and the warnings of doing so. When God's judgment is becoming clear, when it's becoming obvious, when God is finding fault, and then people reject what God is doing and saying. Let's look at the end of the two kings. Zedekiah. Where does his rebellion lead? Well, the city of Jerusalem is taken, 2 Kings 24-20. For because of the anger of the Lord, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that the He cast them out from his presence, and Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. Moving down on page 10 to 2 Kings 25.3, the second verse from the top. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. So this famine that has come now is so great that there is absolutely no food. Zedekiah and others flee for their lives but are captured. 2 Kings 25, 4 and following. Then a breach was made in the city wall. The army of Babylon has surrounded it. They're under a siege. And there's no way out. There's, There's no way to escape. And so there's been a made a breach in the wall, and Zedekiah and others are going to try to sneak out and sneak past the army. They, they have no other course of action if they're, not going to, if they're not going to surrender. Okay, If they're not going to surrender, then their only hope is escape. So 2 Kings 25.4, Then a breach was made in the city, and all the men of war fled by night by the way of the gate between the two walls. Uh, the king's garden and the Chaldeans were around the city, and they went in the direction of the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. And all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon in Riblah. Zedekiah pays for his rebellion, verse 6. And they captured the king and brought him to the, up to the king at Riblah. And they passed sentence on him. They, they passed judgment on him. What was going to be the consequence of his rebellion? Zedekiah's sons were killed right before his very eyes. Verse 7, they slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. That was part of the sentence. Bring his sons. 
Make him watch them die. Number five, this stands in stark contrast to the repentant Josiah, who had humbled himself before the Lord God. And if you remember when we were talking about King Josiah, I emphasized that emphatically, that Josiah had humbled himself. And I talked about the difference between humbling oneself and being humbled. You see, Zedekiah is going to be humbled, but he never humbled himself. Josiah humbled himself. When, when he heard of the wrongdoing, he was repentant. Zedekiah isn't. So notice the difference in 2 Kings 22.20 of Josiah. Therefore, because he humbled himself, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I'll bring on this place. God says to Josiah, because you humbled yourself, because when you heard, remember Josiah's the one where the, the law is discovered in the, the temple had been lost, but now that it had been discovered, and then he humbled himself and became obedient to the law of God. God says, okay, okay, I'm going to, post the, I'm going to postpone this judgment. Because you humble yourself, it's not going to happen in your lifetime. Because you have humbled yourself, you're not going to see this. But it's coming. For there are wicked kings after you. But for you, you're not going to see it. God spares him from this. But in stark contrast, the last thing that Zedekiah sees is the destruction. Not only does Zedekiah see the disaster that has come, furthermore, that is the last thing that Zedekiah sees, top of page 11. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put out the eyes of Zedekiah. So they blind him. Right after his seeing, his son slaughtered. So this man, the last thing he sees before, before his eyes are gouged out, before he's made blind, is the death of his sons. That's the lasting memory that he is going to have to carry because of his rebellion against the king of Babylon and against God. And so what he refuses to accept comes upon him, verse 7. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, cut the eyes of Zedekiah, and bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. So what he so doggedly resisted and refused ultimately comes upon him. Or this is God's judgment. This is what God says will happen. To so doggedly refuse and to be arrogant was futile. The city of Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed. Verses 8 following the fifth month on the seventh day of the month. That was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. And he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house, he burned them. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were in the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. What a difference. 
Jehoiachin, who accepted and did what he was due, the city was spared. People are still going on. People are living. But Zedekiah, he continues in his rebellion. Well, the city's going to be destroyed. Houses are burned. Palace, even the temple. So B, Jehoiakim. Where does his submission and captivity lead? Well, the end and the death of Jehoiakim is that it went well for him in the end. The the beginning of the the captivity, captivity was very difficult for Jeconiah. You can't deny that. 2 Kings 25, 27 and following. And in the 37th year of the exile, Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year they began to reign, graciously, graciously freed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from prison. But the end came out as well as could be expected. Verses 28, 29 and 30. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings that were with him in Babylon. The the king of Babylon was able to conquer all the kingdoms around him. This was God's will and doing as well. So he had all of these kings imprisoned. Now he lets the kings go and he elevates Jeconiah above all the other kings. Verse 29, so Jehoiakim put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lived. So he was provided for, cared for. So what God had said that would happen in the captivity even included Jeconiah. God would provide for him. God would care for him. Now there's no reference that he ever comes to faith. But as a king, he did what God had said he should do, probably for the wrong reasons, but nevertheless, he did the right thing, and that is he surrendered. The book of Jeremiah ends with the exact same words that ends the book of 2 Kings. Notice. The book of Jeremiah, chapter 25, the very last words. And in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the the 12th month, on the 25th day of the month, evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that began to reign, graciously freed Jeconiah, king of Judah, and brought him out of prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put off his prison garments And every day of his life, he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs until the day of his death, as long as he lived. That is the exact same account, word for word. The book of 2 Kings and Jeremiah has an identical ending. And it is pointing out what happens to Jehoiakim. The lesson is it is far better to accept God's judgment and discipline than to rebel and fight against it. 
God holds nations and peoples accountable. Better to accept the accountability than continue to reject in arrogance and praise. So, conclusion. What are we to learn from a passage such as this? Well, first, God is able to humble those who oppose him. Josiah humbled himself. Zedekiah refused to be humbled, was defiant, but ultimately will be humbled. Many in Judah supported Zedekiah's defiance and shared in his downfall. Or in reality, they shared in his arrogance. They shared in his rebellion. They too chose the way of defiance rather than to submission to the authority of God's word. So as went the leader, so went the people. There is a sinful tendency for leaders and for all of us when caught in our wickedness to show no more no remorse. And even more telling, to show no shame. I wish I had time this morning just to talk about the places in the scripture in which when people are to be ashamed of themselves, things are done that ought to humble people. They, they ought to cringe at what happens. Instead of cringing, they take pride. And they arrogant, and they defy and mock the very thing that should bring them low. They pride themselves in their arrogance, and they think they're going to get away with it. Rather than be disgraced and humbled when God brings about judgment, as Jeconiah was, they remain proud and defiant as Zedekiah was. It does not end well for the proud and the defiant. While accepting the discipline of God is never easy, it's by far the better way in the end. There's a great lesson to be learned in God dealing with the nations. For we learn, and it's important to keep in mind that God is still bringing judgment against leaders. God is still the God who sets up and removes. Nothing has changed. Some will be humbled. Others will humble themselves. Some are old enough to remember Watergate. Others may not know much about it at all. Some of us lived through it. Some of you have read it in history books. And others don't know much about it at all. Well, let me tell you a little bit about Watergate. Early in, in, in uh, June, June 17, 1972, police apprehended five burglars at the office of the Democratic National Committee headquarters in the Watergate 
complex. Five individuals had broken in in order to deal with election issues. On June 23rd, 1972, the president at the time, which was Richard Nixon, through channels, ordered the FBI to tamp down the investigation. The FBI was investigating what occurred in this break-in. President Nixon told the FBI, cool it. Don't do that. Later, this order revealed in what became known as the Nixon tapes, or Nixon secretly recorded his phone calls and the conversations in the Oval Office. But eventually that tape was discovered and became the smoking gun, proving that the president had been a part of a criminal cover-up from the beginning. Among those that were involved was Chuck Colson. He wrote a book entitled Born Again. And by the way, that book is in our church library if you would like to read it. Chuck Colson was an American attorney and political advisor who served as special counsel to President Nixon from 1969 to 1970. Once known as President Nixon's hatchet man, Colson gained notoriety at the height of the Watergate scandal for being named as one of the Watergate Seven also for pleading guilty to obstruction of justice, for he was the special counsel to the president. He pleaded guilty to obstruction of justice. He served seven months in the federal maximum prison in Alabama as the first member of the Nixon administration to be incarcerated for Watergate charges. He went to prison, maximum prison, for seven months because he pleaded guilty. Guilty to obstruction of justice. What is fascinating is why he pled guilty. In 1973, Charles Colson became a born-again believer. He submitted his life to the authority of God. And he knew it was going to be humbling. He knew it was going to be disgraceful. And he knew that he was going to go to prison. But because he was a born-again believer, He said, I have to plead guilty, or I am guilty. He was the first to go to prison. He wasn't the last. President Nixon ultimately resigned from office because the Republican Party, he was a Republican, refused to stand by him. The Republican Party came to him and said, 
you're guilty. If you don't resign, you're going to be impeached. And so he resigned. That's all historical fact. That's all what happened in our nation and in our country. And I submit to you, it was God at work. God holding people accountable. That's what God does. The difficulty for God's people in every generation is do you accept accountability or do you mock it? Do you refuse it? Do you reject it? Do you plow on in a course of rebellion and self-reliance? It doesn't go well to refuse to humble oneself. It doesn't go well for the individual. It doesn't go well for the nation. May our God, who continues to lead in this world, grant us wisdom in humbling ourselves before him and accepting accountability. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your grace. Lord, you are a God who is at work. You are a God who repeatedly, repeatedly, because you are so long-suffering and steadfast, point out wrongdoing. Continue to warn. But there are those that will not accept their wrongdoing. They will not humble themselves. They will not admit that they have done wrong, and they will stand in defiance and rejection of all authority. Lord, we know what happens when people are defiant before you. Give us compliant hearts. We pray for our nation. We pray for our country. Lord, may we be one nation under God. May we acknowledge our allegiance to you and in your workings and in your doings. May you be exalted, for it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.